I'm Duncan Hilton. This is the Religious Life Podcast. How do you respond when you feel called to center your life around an ancient rhythm of prayer and care for the land? The obvious option is to become a Benedictine monk or nun. But what if you also feel called to marriage and raising children? Seven years ago, Lisa and Mark Kudelowski created Metanoia Vermont in Stratford, Vermont to live out these multiple calls. In full disclosure, I am a friend of Mark and Lisa's and a former board member of Metanoia. On a few dozen acres, Mark and Lisa welcome guests and interns and seek themselves to live the way of Christ through prayer, work, and study in relationship with the land. This means raising livestock, growing a garden, tending a woodlot, caring for children, managing a nonprofit, and in between all that, praying six times a day. What led them to create Metanoia? How were they up to something beyond, in Lisa's words, doing monasticism poorly with kids running around? How have their young children enhanced the community's prayer life? What have been the blessings and challenges of the ministry on their marriage? What are the shadows of Metanoia? the temptations and dangers of a life of prayer and work on a Vermont hill farm? How did they think about wealth and poverty and their choices around money? And at the cost of inclusion, what have been the benefits of creating a community that is not interfaith, but specifically rooted in the Roman Catholic tradition? And finally, as they reflect during their sabbatical after the startup of chapter of Metanoia, what are their hopes for the next chapter? I talked about these questions and more with Mark and Lisa this past week. One image that stands out from the conversation is Lisa's description of how the community aims to embrace the imminent and the transcendent. In the same day, a guest might be gutting chickens and spending hours in silence. Even if you don't live near Vermont or have a call similar to Mark and Lisa's, I hope that in their love for their place and their vocation, you hear in their embrace of the imminent and transcendent, some wisdom that transcends their particular location and that relates to your own place and your own call. As always, there are a number of helpful links in the podcast show notes and my Substack post related to this conversation. You can find a link to all that at my website, duncanhilton.net. You'll also find information there about how to join weekday prayer and meditation groups, And finally, my ministries of writing, podcasting, prison chaplaincy, and teaching are funded by listeners and readers. If you like what you hear, please go to duncanhilton.net and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring donation. And now my conversation with Mark and Lisa Kudelowski. Welcome to the show, Mark and Lisa Kudelowski. Let's begin with a prayer. The Lord be with you. And also with you. God, we offer this conversation to you, build with it, and do with it as you will. Give thanks for this beautiful day, for this community, for this marriage, and we pray that you, that we know your presence in the midst of us. Um, Bless our listening, bless our speaking, and I pray for all those who are listening that they may hear something of God speaking to them during our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to 
begin with your stories about how you were called to this ministry. Mark, I'll begin with you. You're a Dartmouth graduate. You live in the Upper Valley. It's my understanding you grew up in upstate New York. Is that right? That's true. Outside of Ithaca? Between Rochester and Buffalo. Okay. So Western New York. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, you have a sort of similar profile maybe to other folks who go to a place like Dartmouth. You were academically high-performing and you played hockey, but rather than a doctor, lawyer, a management consultant, you're here living on a farm with not only your wife and kids, but other people as well. You pray multiple times a day. So can you share a bit more about where your life went off track? (laughs) (laughs) What happened? (laughs) Yes, yes. Like many, uh, for me, a major turning point was a a period of significant loss and hardship. Um, For me, it was both the end of a sort of first love relationship, losing my position on the Dartmouth hockey team, which Mm. is part of what got me to attend the school, and then a a serious physical injury that all happened within about a span of a year. And particularly with the injury, I, I had to take some time away from college. And as I was starting to recover, I had some time and at the advice of some friends, went and spent a few weeks at a Benedictine monastery. Mm. And during the time at the monastery, I was exposed to the Christian contemplative tradition, some of the teachings about salvation understood as divinization or being drawn into the life of God and sharing in in God's life. And this really captured my attention, both Mm. the teaching, but also seeing these monks that embodied a, a very deep spiritual joy And shortly after that, before returning to college, I also felt a strong sense of being called, one might almost say driven, uh, into the wilderness. And so with relatively little experience at that point in my life, I went out and did a a two-week stay um, at a remote cabin in northern New Hampshire. And this was during the wintertime, so skied in, tumbled and fell a bunch of times on my skis. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. But got there and then spent a couple of weeks in solitude and prayer and exploration of the land, but mostly prayer and solitude. And say that God woke up certain things in my being during that time that have been with me ever since. Mm -hmm. And the reality of both God's presence and also of the living beingness of other creatures, the beginning of a de-objectification, we might say, Mm -hmm. of the natural world. And so I've been seeking a life of loving connection with both God and with the creation mm. ever since. And mm. what we're doing here is one expression of it that, that I've been blessed with over the years. Was there a particular moment on that retreat where you sensed like a shift or was it just the routine and the being uh, outdoors? I would say both, but there was a moment where I was sitting on the ca- at the cabin on the porch praying and snow was falling and I just heard the words emerging from within, I am. And it, it felt a Nordic version of Moses in the burning bush. Mm. Like this sense of God, the source of all life and all being present there within me and beyond and utterly beyond me as well. And in the snow and in the trees and just encompassing all and that that was more real than any thought I could have even my own real more real than my own body or my own perception this was ground reality and I was invited to to share in that in Mm. love 
So there were there was that moment of that time that has stayed with me mm. ever since. It's hard to it's hard to build up a, a, a career in something else when after an experience like mm. that, that that became the driving motivation in my life. Mm. Thanks. Lisa, you have a bit of a different journey. You grew up Mennonite in mm -hmm. was it in Amish country? Is that it's close to Amish close country. To Amish country bordering <laughs> Amish country? And so here you are a Roman Catholic living in Vermont. Can you share a little bit about how you got here? Yeah. How did I get? The short answer is that Mark and I met and then we had this dream and this is where we ended mm. up doing it. But the longer version, I was, I lived in Huntington, Pennsylvania for about six years before Mark and I met and I moved to Vermont. And the first four years, I was working in campus ministry. And the last two years, I was baking with a baking sourdough bread and a wood-fired oven, very small scale, living very cheaply at the bed and breakfast where I was baking. And it was my time in Huntingdon that I found my ecclesial home mm. and so it was 2014 that I had been like sneaking into, or I'd been going to daily mass and still attending other services on Sunday. And then, and then eventually, ultimately there's, there are lots of different, there were, there were some, there was some journey intellectually in terms of becoming Catholic and spiritually. And there were lots of different ways in which I was wrestling with it and at the end of the day I realized that it was the place that helped me pray the best and mm. felt drawn to the sacraments and so it's like okay I go to church to learn how to pray so mm. <laughs> this is where I'll land and so it was right out, out of as I was getting out of campus ministry I began the RCIA program to prepare for confirmation and as I got out of campus ministry I also turned to baking bread which was, which in a lot of ways feels like both of those things are my, the two steps that I took towards what is metanoia before Mark and I met. <laughs> and with baking bread, it was, I was working in a higher ed context and in a pretty intense ministry context. And I, I was only four years in, but I was tired and was looking around at a lot of my older colleagues. And I, ju I just felt a lot of fatigue from a lot of people and I couldn't and I felt dry I, just, I didn't even know what exactly what I was baking was really restorative in a lot of ways of just the grounding and the having time with my hands and a very quiet solo tasks it was around this time that I started going on silent retreats and that felt like it wove into my work as a baker and I was living 20 minutes outside of the college town at the bed and breakfast which was also very quiet. I, I don't remember how long into that time that I was there baking but I suddenly felt like I had the capacity to love people again. Mm. And it was in the second summer of baking that Mark and I first met. We met online and our first time meeting at dinner that first date we were already starting to talk about some of the seeds of what is now metanoia mm -hmm. by the time we 
met and got engaged three and a half months later and then married six months after that, it was like, there's all of these seeds in the ground waiting to come forward and, or to sprout, and it was just like, as soon as we met, it was like, time to go! <laughs> it was a lot of prepared soil ahead of time. Mm. I love that you all began visioning this on your first date. Um, <laughs> just to go back a little bit, Lisa, I almost mm -hmm. felt tears when you were talking about, okay, I guess this is where I'll go to church. I wonder what that process was like. Yeah, of making that decision. Yeah, or... I felt tears of surrender, maybe. I don't know if I'm imagining mm. something. Yeah, yeah, there was pain and confusion around making that decision, what I've learned Catholicism was or wasn't, or <laughs> mm. and also it felt like leaving the church home I've been given in a different way, and I think a lot of that is just the historical divides between Protestantism and Catholicism, mm. and so I think there was a surrender in whatever social voices were around me and, and friends and family who maybe didn't understand. I needed to surrender to what I was being called to and ultimately what I felt for me was going to help me grow mm. in my relationship with God. And I do remember a moment of, maybe other people don't need the sacraments. <laughs> maybe other people don't need whatever is here and I don't fully understand, but there was the sacraments and the mystery that was like, but I definitely need all the help I can get. For listeners who haven't visited Metanoia, can you overview of the ministry and what an average day in the life looks like and maybe related to how it is and isn't similar to what you envisioned on your first date? <laughs> I'm curious how the lived reality is different than the imagined one. Sure. Our mission statement is to support those who seek to follow the way of Christ through work, prayer, and study in relationship with the land. And I feel pretty good in my executive director hat that <laughs> I can say the mission statement to answer your question mm. as to what goes on every day, because it does <laughs> sum up much of what happens every day. So we follow the liturgy of the hours in our own way. We have prayers for seven different times a day. The first and the last are usually done in private, and the others are done typically communally with whoever's here on the property, which can be our family. It can be people that are here on retreat. It could be occasionally neighbors that, that stop in. And this past summer, we had three young adults that were with us in residence through the summer, one of them through the year. So there's other long-term guests now that are also often with us. Prayer is a architecture around which the rest of the day is built. And then between those times of prayer, and that's both liturgical prayer and also times for set-apart silent prayer, we have the tasks and the work of living on a homestead in rural Vermont, collecting firewood, food production and preparation, uh, construction, and any number of, of things that can happen. But we favor work with our hands because it is more supportive of extending the spirit of the prayer into to daily life though of course some of our work is more technical and logistical and involving office time 
And then the study aspect is we also try to continuously be engaging with the spiritual tradition and also what we might call the human arts, how to do things like build soil on the land or be a better steward of the animals that we have. So both kinds of study, both study of our material reality and of our spiritual reality that is also an ongoing commitment. So we're seeking to grow or really inhabit those three realms of work, prayer, and study on a daily basis. And that's our cycle. That's our pattern for six days of the week, with Sunday being a Sabbath day that's set apart for worship with our wider church community and times of rest and renewal. And then guests who come are welcome to join in that rhythm or have time for silence and solitude in some a set a more set apart place and so both are available but we don't do many facilitated retreats um it's primarily inviting people to come and join in the way of life with us and to to add to that um what we found over the years is that the best thing that we can do is to hold the spirit of prayer as deeply as we can and then hold a structure that people can enter into and mm. it's not up to us to give somebody some great insight or some particular experience that we really have learned more and more it's our job to just hold the structure and trust that that god and the holy spirit will work as the person needs in their life and the land itself will hold their experience mm. so we're not in charge mm. <laughs> we don't need to be mm. So you all are on sabbatical after seven years of this mm-hmm. ministry. It's really not fair to say you have the time to reflect because you also have two little kids and a <laughs> third one on the way, God willing, and mm-hmm. a farm that always has demands and buildings. But nonetheless, in, in all the space that you've had to reflect, <laughs> I wonder what, what you feel most proud of and what mm-hmm. stands out as you look back on this first chapter of Metanoia. Yeah, so the first six weeks of our sabbatical, we were not here. And I think the most fruitful thing of that time away was realizing the way that we've built things and really been directed to grow things here, that this place really does support a prayerful life Mm. in a way that is not... It's not typical. And we can't just take the intentions of our way of life, go somewhere else, and it be the same. Mm. (laughs) Everything from where we are and how the land and the wildness supports stillness and prayer, just how much we and our guests and others have prayed here. There is a field of prayer that's easier to drop into. We've been very intentional about where the internet is, so we don't have wi-fi access in the places where we live and our guests stay and sleep and where we eat and so we have an office so that when we need to access the internet we can but it's not pervasive into our everyday life so in terms of what i feel most proud of is i think we've done our best to listen to the spirit of god along the way and really be intentional about our decisions about how we build and what we do on the land. I came away with our six weeks away being like, all those little things really matter Mm. and help create a space where people and us can more easily pray and hear the voice of God. How about you, Mark? Similarly, I would say 
the thing I'm probably most proud about is that we have consistently chosen to lead with prayer mm. and in all the other things that are going on in building infrastructure and building an organization we've centered prayer and, and refused to let that get sidetracked mm. and so I'm very grateful for that and that has borne much fruit and secondly I would say is that we've had guests from a wide variety of Christian backgrounds, both denominationally and, say, worldview and perhaps political conviction, as well as some curious and interested non-Christians who have all been deeply nourished by their time here. And the fact that we're holding things in a way that God was able to speak to people from these different backgrounds and all be blessed, to me, is a very good sign and something that I feel very grateful for. Mm. And to piggyback off of that, something that we talk about frequently is really seeking to hold both the transcendent and imminent aspects of life fully, or put in a different way, the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. And something else we've noticed is that in terms of when guests visit, we have guests who will come who will be really hold, very grounded and really holding an earthly pull. They know what to do with their hands, but give me 20 minutes of silence and I'm going to be like, ah! <laughs> and during their time here, there there is a noticeable shift for them in access to the more transcendent. And alternatively, people who will come who could sit in a, sit in silence for eight days and maybe have their heads in the clouds a little bit, they're like, occasionally pulling guts out of chickens and, <laughs> and it really that's another thing that I'm proud of of that mm. it really feels like there is a lived integration of the heaven and earth mm. um, well, Lisa mentioned something that's particular in our charism here is that we're trying to hold Christian contemplative life alongside family life. So there is a very earthly embodied aspect of that with the needs of children. And so it informs how we experience contemplative virtues, because it's just not necessarily an option for particularly for the two of us as parents to spend long hours in silence. And yet, there's a way that we can seek to orient every moment of our life towards receptivity to God. Mm. It will just have a different face than it, than it might look in a Trappist monastery. Yeah, I want to ask about that because I feel like the closest analogy to what you're doing is a monastery in many ways. There's a regular rhythm of prayer, which is drawn from the Benedictine tradition. Is that right? You mm -hmm. Rooted in that, yeah. although we've had some things shifted to our needs. Yeah. And you, know, you grow your own food, which many monasteries do. On the other hand, the monasteries I visited, maybe they have a dozen brothers. Some of them have an office staff that are doing fundraising and sending out emails. But shared among those dozen people are roles of ordering food and worrying about building new grounds and then designing a liturgy, and not to mention that they don't have young children. Mm -hmm. So you all are doing this a couple. What seems like is usually the work of a dozen <laughs> <laughs> it people, feels that way. Single yeah. people, so like, how's that working? <laughs> yes. yeah. First, I'd like to speak to the children part yeah, rather sure. than the short staff part, yeah. and that 
something as we're seven years in and our our oldest daughter is almost four and our second is almost two and we really did take Benedictine monasticism as the starting point and Mark has mentioned before that we're not just trying as uh, a married couple with children to do monasticism poorly <laughs> mm. <laughs> with like kids running around and then not mm. getting enough time for prayer but that's largely been our starting point and it does feel like we're at a threshold of of exploring more deeply the question of what a community that includes families and is as committed to a life of com contemplative practice and inner spiritual growth, what that community looks like on its own terms and where children aren't just getting in the way of us doing it well, but are actually a part mm. of the sanctification. And that's one of our questions. Mm. Okay, where are we still just working with a model that doesn't quite fit and it feels frustrating because of these other responsibilities? And where are the places that caring for children and their wonder and their inquisitiveness and all of the gifts that they bring actually supporting the whole and so it's exciting because it, it, it seems like seven years from now, at the next sabbatical cycle, that a lot of that will have become incarnated, mm. I think. And I can start, I can see glimmers, I'm starting to see some glimmers of how that mm. can take shape. And, so, can you share about fun. some of those glimmers? Some of the glimmers? Yeah. So one of the things that we've started to do at Vespers, I'll say before before children or when our oldest daughter was just an infant in arms, we had a liturgy that included some scripture reading and but the and at the beginning and then we'd have 20 minutes of silence and then some closing and I don't ever remember when but it is now collectively we do five minutes of silence mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we seek out the 20 minute 20 to 30 minutes at another time but what we now do at Vespers is about half the time we'll tell uh, the story of a saint. One of the adults will research a saint or tell a story they already know. As a community for us, we also had a, a third member last year. We really were much more tuned into the communion of the saints that way of just mm. constantly. And then we ask for that saint's intercession. And it's that whole orientation of that decision to start telling saint stories just awakened this whole beautiful aspect of the tradition to me that I just wasn't as tuned into before. Mm. And then we've also begun a time for children's response in that five minutes of silence. Often Anna, our oldest, she wants to read, in quotes, read her own gospel, mm. or she wants to do a song. And so we're like, we want to encourage this because she's engaging with the liturgy, but it can't just be whatever she wants. So there's a specific time for it now. And she is often reflecting either on the gospel from that day or recently. Sometimes it's like a little homily. <laughs> and we're sitting in a position of silence and receptivity. And you can listen or you cannot. But at least once a week, her reflection helps me see some aspects 
of the readings in a new way. Like a song she wrote about, she started singing of Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus is like the biggest candle. <laughs> and it's a song that will be with us forever. Yeah. Like, um, it was a favorite Advent and Christmas mm. song. <laughs> Mark, do you want to add anything to that? Sure, I would say, because I have spent time, I never took vows anywhere, but I have spent time living in monastic community, and I would say that among the multitude of gifts of monasticism, one of the challenges or shadow sides can be things, the, the structure and the routine and the silence and the order becoming a bit of an idol. Mm -hmm. So one, one place where I lived, I remember there was a, a place that people lived in a very intensive silence and solitude and there was one community member's job it was who, to set out breakfast and then gave that job to someone else and they set the bananas at the right side of the table rather than the left side and this was a big <laughs> problem a big deal <laughs> a source of grave distress for the original member and i think that's just it's human nature when you have so much stillness and order that then small things become big things mm. and that doesn't happen when you have a one-year-old and a three-year-old <laughs> it just can't mm. so there's also a, a way in which the children prevent us from making these small things into idols and so they counterbalance you know the very high ideals of a contemplative stance and they keep it from becoming locked into something fixed mm. and that i think keeps some of the freshness of the spirit alive mm. in our life here mm. And along with that, there is just the act of service that goes along with mm. having small children. And Mark and I are both formed in Centering Prayer, and the there's the word of consent. And a lot of times, especially if we are in a time of communal prayer, and one of the kids needs to go to the bathroom, or one of them is tantruming about something, and to consent to respond as I need to as a mother, Sometimes in the time of prayer, it's almost easier. It's not pulling me away from prayer. Mm -hmm. It's not just like that return to God during centering prayer. I can feel that supporting me in the rest of mm. the day when I'm like, I just sat down. I don't want to get back <laughs> up. This is the prayer of the season mm. of being a mother of small children. It doesn't always feel that way, but sometimes I can feel it. Mm. It helps with that framing and that movement. And I, I would add to that a summary of a major theme of, of Christian uh, spiritual practice would be the practice of laying down one's will mm -hmm. to do the will of God. And if your vocation is a parent, a part of your vocation is being a parent to care for little ones, when you have an agenda and then their needs right in front of you force you to lay that agenda down and do what they, they need out of love for them, that is the practice of laying down your will mm. to do the will of God in that moment. <laughs> Many opportunities every day to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um. I hear the many gifts of having children in Christian community and how mm -hmm. that's challenging you to think about the potential here and how it differs from monasticism. You mentioned the shadow of monasticism. I wonder if after seven years here, you have a mm. sense of what metanoia's shadow is or if it's yet to emerge. 
I could speak to, to one aspect of trying to live this way with, with children is the tension of the self-emptying and particularly the, the simplicity and call to, say, material poverty that is so much of the, the call of the gospel held with the tension of the desire to protect our children from harm and to give them the best life possible. And I frequently will find myself wrestling with certain decisions that are balancing those two goods. And I think that is is something that I found easier to do as a single person was to opt for what felt like a more radical simplicity in laying down, say, of material possessions and how to be a householder and a radical follower of Jesus at the same time. There are challenges for that that mm. don't have easy answers. I'd say another shadow or something that we feel really important to stay vigilant about is that we don't collapse into pursuing the good life. And there's so many beautiful aspects of what we're doing here. And part of what we're doing and our mission is to seek a life of wholeness, but to not collapse into that being some kind of like ideal life up on the hill up out in the mm. hills not some kind of escapism and what we've found is when we're really consenting to the gospel and the self-emptying that it may be beautiful but it's not easy it's not the good life mm. it's there's a lot of inner struggle in our own sanctification and as as we are emptied out more in that process there's a greater capacity to love, like I had said earlier, and to really help bear the suffering of the world in prayer and in the spiritual sense. And, and that's something that we are we're often talking about, like how to not forget and not to not be aloof to the suffering of the world, how to stay connected and think as long as we really are seeking Christ who suffered, the, those who suffer will always be close. I find another potential shadow that we try to be vigilant about is and I think this could be a risk with any small Christian community particularly doing something new is that when you begin to see yourself as special or mm -hmm. somehow superior to or better than your ordinary Christian experience mm. say in the midst of the world and building up any idealization of your life as being better than and an additional temptation to that will be, or has been for us, is that some people will show up and project all sorts of things onto us. Oh, this is so amazing. This is mm -hmm. so wonderful. And put us up on a pedestal. So a regular practice of being reminded of our own shortcomings, our weakness, our need for God is a very important part of a, a sober spiritual life here. Mm -hmm. One way we do that is we have a daily confession that's a part of it's opt-in so no guest comes here and has to confess their sins but there's a there's a daily time in the liturgy in in vespers to name a place where you've fallen short either that day or something that's come up to you that day about a shortcoming and i try to make it a, a practice to do that every day particularly being in this co-founder role just mm. to try to really make sure that everyone here is aware and I'm aware to myself of my great need for God's mercy mm. every day. Another important commitment for us is to be connected to a local parish. And mm. that this is, we are not a replacement for church. Mm. And we are active in our local parish and have deep relationships with the people there. Mm. And that we are one expression and hopefully 
they support us and we hope we can support them. Mm. I'm struck just thinking about being a married couple and being also parents, but then on top of that, co-founders, co-executive directors, co-managers of an internship program. I don't know. <laughs> Some of this Co-worship is changing, leaders. Oh, okay, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear. That's the <laughs> essence of the question is, what are you learning about marriage and how to do all this? And yeah, so this is one of the shifts during our time of sabbatical of mm. really starting to divide. There's an intensity to everything that you just named but there is a particular intensity of raising small children mm. <laughs> in just its never-endingness. And so we are differentiating, I don't know how to say it, but we are dividing more into I'm going to be managing family and our home sphere, and that'll continue to include the, um, the gardens on the land and we want to seek more help with hospitality and so I'll be working closely with whoever would be helping with hospitality and Mark is taking really running the nonprofit and managing that and thinking about the big vision and we'll continue throughout the sabbatical year we're having at least one day a month where we spend the whole day visioning together Mark and I and we'll still be doing kind of that that meta vision together but when it comes down to the nitty gritty and on the ground, we need to have less things we need to be communicating to each mm. other about. And, and so we're really just trying to find, when we look at this whole thing all together, which is so interwoven, what spheres can most clearly be separated out and then just have someone who's just really able to be autonomous in those areas. Yeah by sheer necessity. <laughs> <laughs> and this also relates to your other earlier question or comment, Duncan, about the number of people involved. We've also found it necessary and very valuable that, that people that are connected with our community that aren't in residence here are able to pick up some of the pieces of what needs to be done. So we have somebody who had lived here for two months who's um, providing some administrative help and support who I meet with um, once a week to coordinate and she's able to take on some of those tasks um, and then uh, we're fortunate to have um, some family members especially Lisa's dad who um, loves to come up and help out with some of the construction work he's even leading up a project and I'm a helper mm. rather than the other way around mm. and Lisa's mom who provides child care for us to do the visioning together right, right. and yeah. to have this interview and cook and, <laughs> yeah. and have this interview thank exactly. you Mrs. mom and dad <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. so that's also part of it is we've over the years found as this project is growing that we are stewards and managers but we can't be the sole workers mm. just won't there's just too much yeah drawing in people from that wider network is one piece of that mm. and then prayerfully being open to other people joining us on a more permanent basis is something that we also are doing as well. Mm -hmm. And Mark had mentioned earlier about really the foundational component is prayer and we've really led with prayer and in a lot of ways the more the outward growth has been slower as a result of that. We certainly have met a number of people who we didn't know before and who are very involved in metanoia, but I would say still the 
part of our community and life are pretty small and it's pretty close and it's it feels it, it now has the potential to shift mm. and so in terms of what I said earlier is like the short staffing I think we're through some critical startup phase where it was like just this huge investment of time and love and care from us and our nearest and dearest and I think we're at a place where we can start to see the true landscape of things a little mm. more clearer and actually be able to identify, okay, these are the people that we need in order to support what we're doing. And mm. these are the finances that we need. And that's one of the things in our, our rule of life is, is around understanding what is enoughness. What do we really need to not burn ourselves out and not to be excessive at the same time? What are you yeah. learning about enoughness with money? Because on the one hand, you all own your land, which is more than many people do. On the other hand, your income is small. I'm sure when you go to your college reunions, you're on the smaller scale of <laughs> income earners. And thinking about Mark growing up as a hockey player, I'm guessing you, know, you won't be able to provide the opportunities to play hockey because you're so deeply in community. Pond hockey isn't as expensive. That's true. <laughs> there's so many darn hills. Maybe there's a pond I don't see around here. But yeah, what? how do you discern an enoughness, specifically when it comes around to money, at least from the outside, it seems like you're choosing a life of less than what you grew up with. That is true. And I think one starting point, I've been doing the Ignatian exercises recently, and Ignatius begins by saying the purpose of human life is to love and to praise and to serve God and for this to lead to the salvation of our souls and therefore we ought to use material things to the extent that they help in this primary goal and to lay them down when they do not. And I think that's, we haven't used quite that language, but that's a good way to think about how mm -hmm. we're trying to use material things. They're in the service of this deeper love and there's nothing wrong with material things, but they're also they're just tools in support of that. Mm. And so the key spiritual practice is learning that question of when is enough. And it's oftentimes a different set point than some of the ideas we grew up with or some of the ideas in the wider culture. So we've said no to things and in some cases had to go without for that. And we've also found that maybe places where our contemporaries and peers have a lot of poverty, say around time with family, time to think, access to the natural world, meaningful relationship to their food. We are wealthy beyond measure. So mm. it's also how we think about poverty mm. because we have a very rich life, even though we couldn't afford to just say, take a vacation where we had to fly somewhere. Not really an option, mm. <laughs> but that's okay <laughs> mm. because of how it doesn't feel like an impoverishment. Mm. Um, yeah, and I've been really helped and challenged by Sister Mary Margaret Funk's writing, she writes about the desert tradition and the eight thoughts, and one of those thoughts is thoughts about things, which traditionally is called avarice or greed. Mm. And when I read her teaching on thoughts about things, mm. 
I realized that I can often err on the side of not acquiring things when I actually need them. Mm. <laughs> and where I really feel like the challenge in the knife's edge now is to be clear about the tools that are necessary for the life that I'm called to, functional tools, and then taking care of them well. Mm. And then obviously in this world, money ends up being a part of that. But really, I think in terms of the spiritual practice for me right now, it's yes, you might need to buy mattresses for your guests. Mm. <laughs> and yes, you might need a can over that isn't going to create this sharp edge for your kid's thumb, mm. not just like whatever was cheapest at the thrift store. So there's a constant discernment because of course that can be exploited. But I find that's my growth edge and where I'm needing to mm -hmm. be more faithful. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it, it reminds me of, you know, there's a, a phrase in the, in the rule of St. Benedict where he invites the monastics to treat all of their tools, say their garden tools, as if they were the sacred vessels of the altar. Mm -hmm. So that degree of, of reverence for the gift of whatever tool it is that you're being asked or invited by life to use at that moment. So we're not at that level yet, but it's, mm. it's something that I, that I keep in mind to aspire to that type of reverence and respect. And I think when we carry that respect to our tools, the issue of excess or not enough tends to find its proper mm. place. Yeah. It also calls into mind prioritizing quality over quantity. One shovel that's well-made and lovingly cared for that could last for 75 years may be worth more than a dozen cheap things that, right. that would break and therefore you don't pay as much careful attention to and leave them out in the rain or whatever. Mm. So we've been trying to, to have less things but also have things that we treat with respect and care for and that are worthy of that respect and, yeah. and care. And then not hoarding. If we understand the tools that we need, then we also understand the tools that we don't need. And then if a tool isn't useful to me right now, who is it useful for? And mm -hmm. I think that then has direct implications with our savings accounts mm -hmm. as well. I have a question bubbling up hearing Mark talk about Ignatius and Benedict and then also the kids loving the lives of the saints and, mm -hmm. and hearing earlier about the importance of prayer. As I meet and connect with other people who are thinking about creating community. I think in our corner of the world, there's such a deep value around inclusivity that mm -hmm. the first impulse is to make it interfaith or interspiritual, and therefore everyone will be welcome. No one will feel excluded, which I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess my concern about that is that who counts as a saint is contested. <laughs> How you pray is mm -hmm. contested. I can say as a Protestant that I don't have trouble praying with you all, and I'm aware that it's a Catholic liturgy. I wonder what you've learned, having chosen a particular tradition, what the gifts of that have been, and if there have been any trade-offs, so that other people who are discerning community mm -hmm. can have your wisdom on thinking through that. Yeah, it's when it comes to living together in a really intentional, which can then be intense mm. way, uh, tradition that is outside of any of the particular people and that that everyone has yes this is what i am following and that that and that's the foundational 
peace. It's in one sense, one less thing to mm. squabble about. There's enough to squabble about. And it's what we then can collectively turn to, which is outside mm. of us. And so we've had the experience of having five adults here this past summer and the whole past year there was there were three. And of course things came up and and every evening we were kneeling together, worshiping and and all feeling called to worship together in the same way, to hear each other's confessions. It's amazing how with both that resident and with Mark, like if I could if I'm like building up some kind of story or frustration throughout the day and then even if I can't hear their words, I hear them confessing before this shared liturgy and understanding that we have, so much hardness can melt away. Mm. And then even beyond that, that shared liturgy, she and I started weekly praying the rosary together. And it was a way in which we were able to help each other deepen in the very path that we chose which it it just helps and in general i'm just maybe more interested in mm. in going deep than going broad and having another catholic here for a year deepened my own mm. catholic faith yeah and i would add that there's a i think there's a dynamic tension here of the virtues of inclusivity and might say holiness or sanctification not that people can't be holy in other religious expressions but the the holiness that comes about when there's a common discipline and a common focus that tends to have that depth component so both are good part of what we've tried to do is to hold our christian expression emphasizing aspects of the catholic faith that are also something that any Christian who's serious about following Jesus could connect with on some level. Maybe we're not going to hit 100%, but as much as we can, we don't have huge images of the Pope everywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we don't need them. And your website, I think your mission says the way of Christ. You don't mention yes. the Roman Catholic tradition. That's correct. It's, yeah. we, we live a Catholic expression of the way of Christ um, because we are embodied in a particular tradition. But we seek to do so in a way that, that other Christians could be blessed by it. And for that matter, to live our Christianity with a deep rootedness in who we are, but also with a respect and a stance of solidarity with all people. So, so avoiding this falling into any sort of an us-them at any level of denominational identification. So, so that being said, I think that one of the great advantages, our goal is to be transformed. And when we're all signing up here in terms of the, the, the core community um, to following Christ in this particular tradition, Lisa and Mark are not the ones deciding what is and isn't the base, the foundational commitments of our life. Mm. It's part of the shared heritage of the Catholic Church. And it takes a power dynamic out. Every intentional community I've seen that doesn't have a specific tradition some charismatic leader then becomes the authority over what is and isn't the path to holiness. Mm. And then it becomes a cult of personality. And there's a lot of ways that goes sideways pretty quick. Mm. Or the other side is if you strive for total egalitarianism, then each person becomes their own individual 
shepherd or, or pope, so to speak. Mm. So that the individual ends up wasting a lot of time deciding, am I in this particular moment, am I doing my Buddhist meditation or am I going to do a Sufi dervish <laughs> practice or you know, am, I, am I called to whatever? And so it ends up with the best of intentions with the, the traditions of all of humanity laid out as an option at any mm. given moment, the ego stays in the center a little more. Mm. But when you're under an authority and a discipline beyond yourself, the ego can't get away with that as easily. It's not mm. perfect. We, always, we often find a way to still make it about ourselves, but it, it makes it a little harder. Mm. So that's one of the great advantages we found by committing to a particular path with respect and solidarity to other paths, but saying this is where we stand and this is where we're invited to, mm. to go deep. Mm. The Jesuit Mark Thibodeau talks about the importance of pre-dreaming, imagining the best case scenario for future outcomes. I hear you say, Lisa, like you're at the end of the startup mm -hmm. stage. I wonder what your pray dreams are for the next chapter of Metanoia. First, that we uh, remain faithful, that we remain centered on prayer and, and seeking the will of God and, and remain uh, detached from specific outcomes. Um, and then we do imagine growing some, both in terms of the, the number of people that are here over the long term, we've envisioned up to three households being able to share in this life on this particular patch of land. And then, God willing, at some point, we would, we've imagined and pre-dreamed something where this rhythm and way of life becomes a resource for others who may come to us or may hear about us that are seeking to live some form of lay contemplative life that we could be a support and resource for others that perhaps by the time, if we're both blessed with a long-ish life, that, that by the time we're laid to rest, there's a network of communities like this that, mm. are, that are trying some version. They'll all look different, but some version of this um, lay and family contemplative life lived in some integrated way mm. and that we're able to help support and steward those efforts for others as well as mm. the good things that, that God may bless us with here. As, as I imagine into this next phase what is exciting but in the fear and trembling in a way as more people come and maybe more people are here in a more deep and committed way and as our children grow just how much life will be informing this place and this work and this ministry that is not Mark and me. Mm -hmm. And what are the gifts and the interests and the pursuit and the experiments on this land that that the other people who find home here or our children who are growing up here, what will that all bring mm -hmm. and what will that all look like? And so it feels very exciting and also hard to even know what that will be. And along those lines, I think, that she's not here to answer, but Anna Theodora's prayer dream mm. <laughs> came up recently when we asked what she wanted for her birthday a fourth yeah. birthday which is coming up in about three months but was she said i want daffodils i want to pick daffodils. I, I want to pick daffodils 
I want all of us to get horses, <laughs> and I want to have dandelion pancakes. Whoa! <laughs> I love that. And we said two of those. Two of those three are definitely going to happen for her birthday. <laughs> but that's her prayer dream. Thank you both for your time. Let's close with a prayer. How perfect yeah. to, that you all would be including me in your yes. prayer. Yes. Let's do. Let's take a moment. Oh God, oh God, come, come to, to our assistance. assistance. O oh Lord, make haste to help us. Praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, make, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Go to DuncanHilton.net to find a full archive of podcasts and my weekly newsletter. You can also find links there to daily prayer and meditation groups. This podcast is not supported by grants or salary, but by listeners like you. You can also find a link at duncanhilton.net to make a donation. Questions, comments, and suggestions for guests can be emailed to duncan at duncanhilton.net.